Hey, Jesus, hippie, look at my billboard, bro. Pretty nice. NoBullshitNewsHour.com. I made it. Available. The fucking YouTube? What the YouTube sticker up there? Facebook? Zuckerberg motherfucker. Shadow banning me. I'm gonna shadow ban him. Get up there, Jesus, and paint over that shit. Man, you missed the spot. Little to the left. No, little to the right. Get it all done. Motherfuckers didn't pay a cent. Shadow bad me. No, 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 no. Don't fuck with Reddit. I like Reddit. Live from downtown Detroit, it's no BS news out with my main man, Spoonie. Na 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 NO BULLSHIT! Just did breaking news. Dub or bullshit. Dub or bullshit. Yeah, well, happy Monday. You remember last week we had Sam Quinones on. America's greatest nonfiction writer going today. It was so interesting, we thought we'd have him back Monday, today. (laughs) It's not really Monday, it's it's last Thursday, but uh, Sam changed his shirt, Karen put on a scarf, and I turned my vest inside out. Charlie, what is the point of doing that if you're gonna tell everybody that's what we did? No bullshit. I have no idea, it was Sam's idea. No bullshit. This is crafty media guys, you know. It is Monday, it's Monday. It is Monday. It is Monday. And if it's it Monday, is Monday. If we say Karen it enough, it'll be true. What are we talking to everyone about? <laughs> Pot him down. All right, listen. What we were talking about Thursday last week was uh, how opioids and uh, oxycontin and heroin became the scourge of the United States. We left off at about 2006, and then big things happened in 2006, namely fentanyl. And we'll get to that with Sam Quinones, his uh, latest book, The Least of Us, uh, brought to you by Hall Financial. Want to remind you that credit card rates, if you're carrying over the interest is what, 20%? Oh, yeah. And that half of you in America are doing that? Hall Financial's here to help you become debt-free, get a cash-out refinance from Hall Financial. That's a great way to use the equity in your home to pay off the high-interest credit card debt. Think about that. 6% 6% or 20%? It's it's simple math. It's easy math. Yeah, yeah it's easy I can math. handle that. A free five-minute mortgage review with Hall is all it takes to get you and your family in a better position. Uh, get the money you need now with a cash-out refi from Hall Financial. Call Hall Fi- Financial. Uh, it says Hall Financial a lot in here. Oh, yeah, Hall Financial, Hall Where Financial. Well, Hall Financial. In, in fact, the number is 866-CALL-HALL or chat with them online at callhallfirst.com. Hall Financial. And remember, when you watch TV, you're bombarded with uh, insurance ads promising to save you money. But if you really want to save the dough, you need to call our sponsors at Legacy Partners Insurance. They're independent, so they shop between 7 and 10 carriers for your insurance to find you the best deal. No cost to you. And when you get your quote, you're going to be like me. You will be a money saver. Red, did you call him? I sure did. Are you going through him? Hey, yes, I am. Yes, he is. 
Look at that. And they called me back on a Saturday. On a Saturday. Hey, they call, they call me, Charlie. I didn't even have to call them. They call me. I'm talking. I sent Alex oh. over my uh, deck pages today. Wow. Get. I, I'm telling you. I, I don't know what else to say about this company. They're great. They're great. I mean, I, I'm raving about them. And this is how you get them to call you. You call them at 586-209-4106. Tell them I sent you. Uh doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, I did mention your name. It didn't you give did? me no good, cheaper good, price. Good, good, good. <laughs> right? Uh, so go to Legacy Partners and tell them you heard it here. 586-209-4106. And finally, play me the music. Luke Nowacki's a scholar. He's a gentleman. And he knows money. Remember, overreaction's not the strategy for the long-term investor. And if you're a short-term investor... Get some advice. <laughs> Amen. He does it all. No, I mean, you know, uh, I got my way. I got the, my plan. He asked me my plan. What are you looking to do? I got a kid. I wanted to go to college. You know, I'm not going to live to be 80. I want my wife to have something. That's what I do. How do you get through the year? What's inflation going to do? What are interest rates going to do? What are you going to do? Stocks, bonds? Do you move your 401k? Your college savings plan? You want to just get started? You want to make the right investments? Are you on a pension board? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he does pension boards. Good. No, he ain't some small fry, this guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's a good just dude. supports the show. We support him. Let him help you. Get advice. Get a strategy. Call Luke Nowacki at Pinnacle Wealth, 248-663-4748. Securities and Investment Advisory Services offered through Rolex Associates Inc. Member of an ASIPC. Rolex Associates Inc. is separately owned in other entities. You know, marketing names for the services around here. Rolex Associates Inc. Beautiful. Charlie, you're probably going to live to be about 110. What? Don't say you're not going to make it till 80. You're probably going to live to about 110. Well, I got news for you. I don't even think the prophets in the Old Testament lived to... No, it didn't live to be no 888 <laughs> years. Methuselah? Yeah, Methuselah did. Methuselah didn't live to be no 924 uh, years well, old. Well, you're going to... You're going to set a new standard, Charlie. Let's think positive. They just counting like the federal government, Karen. I mean, you, you live and then you don't. While you're here, live. That's what I say. You hope they report it right in the end. Well, you'll be able to vote till you're 800, though. Or somebody will. Well, I'll tell you how you vote when till you're 800. You're registered to vote in Michigan. Exactly. Then, then you'll be registered to vote for 800 years. But be warned, you'll die waiting for them to count your vote. I'm telling you. Right. Now, here's another health tip. Yes. Don't buy the dope. Don't buy the dope on the street. I wouldn't even buy weed on the street. Cocaine? Nope. Heroin? Definitely not. It's all got fentanyl. Now, yeah. we, we basically got the world's expert here. I mean, a expert. An expert. And the one who can really communicate it best to we the regular people. This is a big issue. Joining us, author Sam Quinones. Sam, we left off. At about 2006. We left off at 2006 because that's about when fentanyl really hits the scene. Is this correct, sir? Well, it's when the Mexican drug world discovers fentanyl. And they, they if, when last we spoke, you know, you have pills going nationwide, creating a lot of addiction. A lot of people switching then to heroin because they were fully strung out on this stuff. And a lot of them that are really in bad, bad shape. And, and uh, the, the generalized Mexican trafficking world 
gets involved in selling heroin by early 2000, by 05, they are really fully involved in it. One, however, and that continued on for the next 10 years. That's a story that continues on uh, well into the next decade. Uh, um, however, you know, in one part of Mexico, a small element within the Sinaloa drug cartel El wants Chapo. to make, right, that's where the, the, the drug cartel that Chapo Guzman um, led was one of the leaders of. They want to get, make, they want to get a new supply, a new source of a chemical known as ephedrine, which is the way for many years the Mexicans had learned to make methamphetamine using ephedrine, which is a decongestant, which you find in Sudafed pills and, and all the rest. So they hire a, in 2005 and into 2006, as you say, they hire an underground chemist, a guy who, a Mexican guy who had grown up in San Diego, learned somehow to make fentanyl in San Diego, went to prison for a number of years in federal U.S. prison, where he learned to make fentanyl better. He then gets deported, comes back, and they contact him and say, how about if you were to make ephedrine for us, we would set you up in, 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 in a very um, a well-appointed lab with all the top glassware and all this kind of stuff. And what we want you to make, though, is ephedrine. And he says, sure. Meanwhile, in the back of his mind, though, he's thinking, these guys don't know that I have access to one of the most profitable drugs, the most profitable drug they'll ever deal with. And so instead of making fentanyl, uh, ephedrine, I'm sorry, after they get the lab set up, he instead never actually makes ephedrine, he makes fentanyl. Well, these guys, after funding all this, get fairly mad because like, hey, we want you to make ephedrine. He sits them down and he says, no, what I'm making for you, you don't understand. This is what he says, what he calls it is, he doesn't call it fentanyl, he calls it synthetic heroin. Heroin you can make from chemicals. You don't need to grow poppies anymore. No sunlight, no irrigation, no farmers, no helicopters overhead spraying your plants, none of that. We're making this stuff, and they go, okay, we're listening. And he says, what's more, this is the most potent and therefore profitable drug you will ever deal with. I have done... I have done experiments on mice, he tells them, and I can cut a kilo 50 times and it'll still be uh, user, uh, uh, saleable on the streets. Now, that is something they don't believe because they're veteran drug dealers. Nobody on the street has ever cut a drug 50 times and have it be not anything but pure bunk. But he says, no, this is true. And in fact, they do some tests. They sell it. They make, they, he begins to make it. They sell it first in Chicago. Then they work on up to Detroit. And little by little, they begin to see that this is, in fact, exactly as he says, extraordinarily potent, extraordinarily profitable. And this is the first time, by the way, we see a mass die-off, too, to fentanyl, where you begin to see all of a sudden hundreds of people dying hundreds a month every and over time over the next nine months before the lab is eventually busted you see several many thousands of people dying all of a sudden like in chicago in st louis in detroit then eventually cleveland then eventually philly and camden and um over the next nine months he makes fentanyl and they're like astounded they the lights go on in the sunaloa drug cartel particularly as one group, but eventually everybody in the group knows because a similar drug cartel is not really a, 
an organization is more confederation of traffickers, you know, but everybody kind of figures this out. But the problem is for them that they, that this guy ends up getting busted. That lab is busted in April, 2006 by the Mexican authorities. And he, the, the guy who runs it, Ricardo Valdez Torres, also known as the brain is put in prison and he, he is out of, out of commission. So they actually lose access to the guy who know who they know who knows best how to make this stuff. Several years pass, they don't forget fentanyl though. They say, "Wow, it's synthetic heroin, heroin you don't have to grow poppies to make." Wonderful, fabulous. Meanwhile, the Chinese chemical companies are figuring out that they can sell this stuff. They've known how to make fentanyl for a lot of years, legitimately fentanyl, legitimate, and they, their companies begin to sell it illegitimately, illegally to traffickers using the web, using the dark web and sometimes the open web that we all use. And eventually you begin to see the first, after that one die off, which ends with the bust of that lab. So you get thousands of people dying and then they stop dying, right? And then several years later, you begin to see the trafficking, uh, the, 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 I'm sorry, the chemical companies in China understand that there's a market particularly in those states where the opioid epidemic has hit first and worst, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Tennessee, West Virginia, of course, all these places, all of a sudden dealers in there, the word spreads, particularly first it seems in Northern Ohio, Akron, Cleveland, uh, places like that, where they where they discover, hey, fentanyl is a additive to heroin. You can add it, boost your heroin, and it'll it's dirt cheap. It's uh, the little, few little grains will do it. And, and, and they begin to buy this stuff from the Chinese who begin to, the companies there, Chinese chemical companies, mail it through the mail, pound at a time, something like that. These guys don't know what they're doing, these dealers on the street level. What they, what they see is lottery winnings. Fentanyl means lottery profits. The problem is, and unlike any other drug before, in order to get those lottery profits, they have to mix fentanyl with something else because it's so potent that a few grams, a few grains, I'm sorry, will get you high. A couple more will kill you. But either way, you cannot sell a few little grains like worth of salt. Just think of a few grains of salt on the street. It's just not logistically possible to sell that in a little baggie. So they have to mix it with something else, with some other lactose, some other powder that doesn't do anything to be able to sell this stuff. The problem is they are awful mixers. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to make. And so for a long time, they were mixing up this stuff that was killing huge and, and overdosing people in enormous clusters. You'd see in a weekend, 50, 75 people overdosing in Cincinnati and in, in uh, Huntington, West Virginia. And uh, one, one reason for that was that the myth had spread on the street that the best way to mix your fentanyl with another inert powder was with a magic bullet blender. Now, um, this is, I have a magic bullet blender. They're mag, 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 magnificent instruments. I make, I make smoothies and salsa with my magic bullet blender, and it's great. It's, it's a wonderful kitchen implant. It's an awful thing to use to mix your fentanyl because it's powder. And, and the magic bullet blender, fentanyl is powder, and fent, magic bullet blender only blends liquid. These guys don't know that. They don't care. They're mixing the stuff. Narcs are finding you know, five, six, eight dozen magic bullet blenders at these mixing sites. It's a, it's an amazing guy's like, just shitstorm of stuff. And all this stuff's going out and killing people in, in large concentrated numbers. But the Mexican trafficking world never has forgotten fentanyl. So they begin to buy fentanyl from 
from the Chinese. But then eventually I think what happens is they find chemists who teach them how to make it. And that is when the world shifts. That is a, the, a traumatic change because now they have access. They, they, they see that synthetic drugs are the wave of the future. You don't need land. You don't need irrigation, sunlight, any of that that they used to do to grow their own dope. Now all you need is a shipping port, control the shipping port, which they do. You can get ingredients from the world chemical, all the ingredients you want. And that's what begins to happen really about 2016, 17. Gradually, the Chinese chemical companies are eclipsed. They begin to sell the ingredients to the Mexicans and the Mexicans in Mexico begin to make it with these with these ingredients that are coming in through the ports, through the airport in Mexico City, big, big source. All of that allows them to make just simply like like staggering quantities. Why don't the Mexican authorities stop this? It's well, because they're ports uh, of. Yeah, I mean, there's there's problems with with uh, a, a long standing problems with corruption in Mexico. There's also, I would say, uh, you know, they, these drug traffickers are by now warring amongst each other and they are very savage. And a lot of that is brought on by the fact that they are getting guns from the United States that are bought here very easily, assault weapons and smuggled south and they become weapons of choice. So that's part of what guarantees their impunity is the heavily armed nature of their work. Um, all of that is very, very difficult to, to deal with the Mexican government. Um, and now you have a president who really doesn't want to collaborate with the United States at all. And so you've got that problem too, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack when you've got this kind of money, these kinds of weapons, and this kind of history of, 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 uh, uh, of, of corruption. Well, whatever the case, you begin to see this impunity result in simply staggering quantities of fentanyl. And what happens about 2015, 16, well, 17 and 18, is you begin to see the fentanyl, now that it's made in Mexico, and in huge amounts and growing amounts in larger amounts every year, it begins to spread. It goes from that so central states that I mentioned to both coasts eventually over the next couple of years. And it arrives, I'm from California, first, first large overdose cluster of overdoses of fentanyl was in 2018. In Chico, California, you're seeing other states have other times. But, but by 2018-19, fentanyl is pretty much all over the country, which is a remarkable thing. Uh, we've never had one drug from one source cover the entire country, unless you're counting doctors and, and opioid painkillers. Say that again. Uh, we've never had one drug cover the entire country, and eventually we'll have two. We'll get to that story. What do you mean? Like well, we've cocaine never had, the Meaning that you find this drug everywhere. Now, we've had marijuana. Marijuana is everywhere, but marijuana is grown by many, many different people all over America, all over Mexico. You know, um, you've, you know you, you've really never seen one drug. So what, about, what about the crack epidemic, Sam? You, you said never one drug with a proliferation around the country. Uh, but what about the, 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 the crack era? I mean, that, that had coasted. Right, you know, I hear you, but the crack epidemic was not nearly as prolific and as prevalent as as uh, as as prevalent as, as fentanyl has become. It's in every community. It's in all over the country. Crack was was confined to urban areas. It seemed to me. I covered the crack epidemic. Now, not every uh, rural area was was uh, immune from it, but many, many, many were, and you just didn't see it as much as you see fentanyl, which is now. The problem, because fentanyl, as Charlie said earlier, 
is now in everything. And that's that's part of the issue that's so prevalent. It's so common. We Dope dealers are using fentanyl a little bit like the way we use salt on salad in our food, whatever. We just throw it on there because what because why? Because it's easy, it's cheap. And uh and it boosts things. And people um, wanna and people wanna buy that. You know, when when you're looking for dope, you're looking for the thing to give you the kick. So somebody was I'm gonna ask you, uh somebody was asking me why would they put fentanyl and stuff. I said, Well, fentanyl's cheap. It's easy to smuggle, right? Um well, you can true. grind up parsley. Put a couple of uh, grains of fentanyl in it, and it's super weed. You can take Johnson's baby powder, put some couple grains of fentanyl in it, and it's awesome cocaine. Correct? Right. Yes. And the difference, though, is that it, 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 there's various stories. Okay, so it's not one story, but 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 frequently it's people. Even sometimes the the, the lowest street dealers don't really know what they're selling. Sometimes it's people above that that were selling it, but but it's really the Mexicans though. You don't find cocaine and meth and heroin and marijuana mixed uh, coming across the border mixed with fentanyl. That, that mix is happening lower uh, to the street. But another reason, there's two other reasons why that would happen. One is that it's a sloppy mix. Now, initially I thought that was pretty much, that, that accounted for a lot of it. People don't know what they're doing. So they just kind of, they have a pile of this and a pile of that and they just kind of make a mistake. I think though that those days are pretty much over. I think really what this is about is boosting the drug, as you say, that's absolutely true. And then also when you give a uh, fentanyl to a cocaine, a, a customer who buys cocaine from you twice a week, pretty soon that person is no longer a cocaine customer, he's a fentanyl addict. He's getting that dope sick and, and he's gotta come back for more. And pretty soon that customer is a full-fledged fentanyl addict and buying from you every single day. And here's the thing about fentanyl, unlike heroin, very different. It's a magnificent anesthetic. It's a revolutionary anesthetic and a wonderful drug when used in the surgical setting because it takes you in and out of anesthesia very quickly. And so it's, I've had fentanyl when I had a heart attack. They gave me fentanyl. It's been used in cardiac surgery for decades. It's a wonderful, wonderful drug used surgically. The problem is when used illicitly in the street, what made it once a benefit is now a torment for users because now it's taking you in and out very quickly. You're never very far away from that dope sickness because it's always kicking you off and, 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 and you're constantly having to use. So, so a user has to end up, might have used twice or three times, heroin twice or three times a day. Now it's using fentanyl five, six, seven times a day and now you're never quite sure of the mix either so every time is like a game of russian roulette and you're seeing this happen all across the country so first it was heroin and initially it was being mixed with fentanyl, but very quickly after that it was cocaine and the methamphetamine and 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 now um uh marijuana as you say because it makes a ton of benef benefit to the dealers not to the users if we could stop for a public service announcement and i mean this and I started last week's show. I would like to dedicate this program in particular to my brother, Pete Kuzniar. Because he was just doing what we all do. He's just going out for a Friday night and he never came back. So I would suggest if you smoke weed, that you go to the dispensaries. And if you want pills, don't get things you think of that are pills. Go to the doctor. 
Go to like legitimate source. Don't am, am I right, Sam? Don't Absolutely. buy on the streets. It's there is there is it really it seems to me that fentanyl has really uh, spelled the end of the recreational drug use era in America. You cannot just take a line or a pill at a party. The other thing that's happening Time because of these pill the the, the the enormous quantities of fentanyl is that a, they, the trafficking world in Mexico has shifted now to making counterfeit pill pills that look like Percocet, Xanax bars, oxycodone generics. Uh, uh, Adderall, various pills like that, and and all they have in them is fentanyl, but they are making them by the tens of millions. It's a staggering amount of wow. pills that they are making, and these are pills now that are all, again all across the country. I'm speaking, and, and they're all over the West. But I was speaking with a prosecutor in New York City, saying we're seeing huge numbers of these pills now too in New York City. So um, it, it's 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 changed everything. There's a thing on the street that says fentanyl has changed everything. That's true. I really think fentanyl and methamphetamine too. We can get to that story in a minute, but 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 it's it's a staggering thing because the truth is too that people last decades on heroin. You can last thirty years on heroin, not a good life, um, but you you can last on fentanyl. The truth is nobody lasts. It's two years, and and if you don't get off the street, if you get treatment, if you get out away from the dope. You are gonna die, and I think that's that's what the the, the, the local scenes are showing. I keep talking to hair uh, to drug counselors; they keep telling me exactly that that there is nobody who really survives fentanyl long term. But of course, fentanyl dope dealers are all about the short term profit right now. They don't care about a year from now, exactly. much less a month from now. There's always that argument like that's a bad business model. Well, you don't understand it. the the industry is the right now. Nobody's plotting a customer base 10 years from now. Hopefully no, people... And, and the other thing is this happened with, with that fentanyl that was coming up from Mexico in 2006. The, 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 the authorities in Chicago, they called it... We've got, they, they didn't know what they were dealing with. They, they said, we've got this very powerful uh, new form of heroin uh, coming in. Please do not use. Well, of course, every addict in, in Chicago made a beeline for that heroin because that's the way you do it. If, if something's... If, it, if it's killing people, that means it must be really good dope. So get down there and, and do it. And that is another uh, a phenomenon that people are now seeing. The more people want, the more people use and get addicted to fentanyl, the more they're demanding fentanyl. And if people are dying from a certain batch or a certain dealer's uh, fentanyl, they're going to go to that dealer. If I could ask this, Sam, the Oxycontin avalanche really basically that, that was that killed white people and to a lesser extent but at a similar rate native americans yes. and now with fentanyl it's really really affecting the black community uh, it's affecting many more people it's it's for the first time affecting the black community in what i guess technically you, because it's an opioid fentanyl's an opioid you could call the opioid epidemic really though this starts with uh, the idea that that within the African-American drug dealing community, they figured out that if I put fentanyl into cocaine, that it'll boost the cocaine, which has been stepped on several times because it comes all the way from Colombia. But then also you will create a new form of customer, a much more regular, much more devoted customer because that person will be strung out on 
on on on an opioid on, on fentanyl, which requires them to use all the time. But that's also where the death toll begins to really begin to mount in the black community, particularly in the, in, in the least of us. I write the story of the first uh, African American man in Akron, Ohio, uh, Mikey Tanner Jr., who at 30 had battled cocaine for 10 years, and is, but he doesn't last two months, I don't think, with fentanyl in the coke in the coke drug stream. And, and he, he dies of, of that, T spoke with his sisters about, about that. So I tell his story, but that is, that is really what begins to happen in, in first in those towns that I mentioned, Akron, Cleveland, et cetera. But then after a while, it's pretty much all across the country. And, and the, it, it, for the first time you begin to see African-Americans dying of, of an opioid, although it's not like the same, you know, it's not from the pills from doctors. It's, it's, frequently people dying because they think they're using cocaine and that cocaine has fentanyl in it. Wow. Is it fair to say, I feel it. I don't know if it's fair to say you're the expert that all of this look, there's personal responsibility and there are people out there. Hey man, it's Darwin. That's on you. You use it. Good for you. Did all of this start from the legal mob, the big pharma, their friends in government, DEA? Is is it? Can we place blame on legitimate business for how we're infected now with this? I would say I spoke last night, as a matter of fact, with a uh, uh, a fellow who's been involved in a drug rehab clinics, methadone clinics, particularly for like forty years, and I was asking him particularly the people you're seeing on fentanyl. You know what? What's their backstory? What is their story generally? Um, obviously, you don't know every 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 patient you have, but you know what is your thought on that? And he says, "Yeah, some people start because they get they use cocaine, they get addicted, or the recreational drug uses, they get something with fentanyl in it, and boom, they're off to the races." But a significant number are people who started with pain pills long before fentanyl ever hit the street. You know, so that echo of the story that we were telling last week about the pain pills to heroin, that is still having an echo. And that is still a, a major part of the consumer market that the trafficking world in Mexico is counting on for its fentanyl sales. Of course, there are other people now being added to that. Other people are dying. It's a, it's a throbbing, robust kind of moving kind of ecosystem. But, but a lot of those folks, um, uh, I keep talking to people about these kinds of things and, and I keep hearing that, yeah, a good number of folks got addicted to this stuff because of a car accident, because of an athletic accident, because of some operation and they kept using the pills. But it, it starts with this very, very aggressive, almost careless approach to prescribing opioid painkillers for pain by legitimate doctors and, and surgeons and then uh, promoted by pharma companies. So our... Doesn't that make Big Pharma and perhaps the United States government uh, our version of the cartel? I mean, this is the blueprint for that, Big Pharma. Uh, there's, yes, that's a good question. I think that there is, um, let me put it this, to you this way. There are court cases in which parents have stood up, uh, primarily against, against like Purdue Pharma. That would be mm -hmm. like the main one uh, here. And, 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 and called them out on that. You're just nothing but a big drug trafficking cartel. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
there are elements of that. In fact, you, you know, the reason I got into writing my first book, Dreamland, on this topic was because I saw parallels between the way the companies were marketing opioids and my guys from this this heroin town, this town in Mexico, Mexico, where everybody came north to, to sell heroin like pizza, were marketing heroin. You know, you, you see very similar approaches. And and to me, that's really, uh, that was what made me think, this is a book. i got to write this book because this is something no one's writing about. And I saw these parallels between them. And so um, there's a lot of people who say that. I'd say there are significant differences, of course, between drug cartels in Mexico and drug companies in the United States. But this, the once you get into selling opioids, again, I think I mentioned this last time, once you get into selling opioids, you become addicted to the money, just like any addict becomes mm -hmm. addicted to the dope. And that's what changes things. It's not like selling uh, hypertension medicine <laughs> or something like that. It's a very different beast, very hard to control, and people get very addicted to that to that cash that it can generate. And that's the way. That that's one particular way, and they seem to be uh, very very similar. The cartels in Mexico and the companies up in, in the United States. You, you want to know what else I think is a cartel are the political parties. Just the way that our government mm -hmm. is conducted. Because someone else to blame is the revolving door between these big companies and, yes. and government. Like uh, Wall Street goes to the United States. Treasury goes back to Wall Street. If you look at the pharmaceutical industry, what was uh, D. Lyndon Barber? This guy, he was the associate chief counsel for the Drug Enforcement Agency. He was, he was responsible for bringing to justice these companies, these distributors that would, you know, oh my God, there's a million Oxycontin pills being shipped, but there's no prescriptions for it, right? A couple years later in 2011, he goes to work for the pharmaceutical industry and to help him yeah. write the law which neuters the DEA from being able to confiscate these pills without prescriptions. Right, brother? Well, I, I'm not familiar with him, um, but okay. I would say that there is that, that tendency. You see this kind of cross-pollination, if you like, bleeding back and forth um, that is very um, uh, unsettling and, 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 and does not allow you to, I've, I've seen too many people also from the, from the, I think from the DEA go into these drug companies and, and work for these drug companies. To me, that, that, that does not sit, um, uh, well, that particular, that guy's case I'm, I'm familiar with, but in general, I would say that there's too, a little bit too much of that. I got, look at that. Yeah. The world's expert. He was, I gave him a case he's unfamiliar with. Look at that. <laughs> look. You did indeed. You went to Cal Berkeley, didn't you? I did indeed. Look at that. I went now. to Calberg like that. It's still <laughs> brothers. We're like a mob ourselves right there. But that's what's upsetting to me, whether it's Bush or uh, Obama or Trump. Wow. There's this just this merry-go-round and we the real people crazy. are suffering and we're not seeing it. We're not yeah. seeing it. It's killing us. Now, you, I, I told Mark earlier, like, I don't care about this proportion of society. Fuck them. I don't, but I'm, I want to talk to you for a minute. It does affect all of us because what Sam just said was what no one was writing about. You want to know what else, Sam? Sam 
used to work for the LA Times. He was a cop reporter. That's the uh -huh. best way to do this. Sam, I don't know how, how long does it take you to write a book? Five years? All the work four, you do? Three, four. Three, three or four, four years from idea to getting yeah. it in and getting it accepted. Right. Meth. Mm. Meth yes. and homelessness. So let's go back to 2006, thereabouts again. The United States starts to get its grip on ephedrine. The Mexican government, if I'm from your writing, they outlaw it. Is that correct? In 2008, the Mexican government has been cutting down on the amount of ephedrine it allowed to be imported into Mexico. And in 2008, it says no, only very small amounts and only to certain companies. And so the, the problem with that the Mexican traffickers face is that they've been using diverted ephedrine from that Im those imports to make their methamphetamine. They become very good at making ephedrine-based methamphetamine and they've, they've industrialized it and they've been selling it. Now, most of that, they don't have enough ephedrine to sell it beyond the West, of, of large chunks of the Western United States. It never crosses the Mississippi River. So in the rest of the United States, what you see are homegrown mom and pop, shake and bake cooks who are making it, you know, maybe a, an ounce at a time. Right, uh, go, using go steal a bunch of Sudafed from home, home uh, exactly. Lowe's or whatever. Then, Not low, whatever. 2008, the Mexican trafficking yes. world sees their golden goose is killed. They've got this great profitable drug. It's meth that taught them the benefits of, of synthetic drugs, not fentanyl. They were been making meth long before fentanyl. They figured out better to make your drugs rather than grow them. But all of a sudden they can't get this in, and so they have to switch. But there's a lot of chemists they can now, they can now have available or they force to be available to them. And the, the, those chemists say there's another way of making methamphetamine that the bikers, the Hells Angels in California used to use. It's very messy. It stinks, but it has one benefit. This, this method has only one benefit. Um, it's made with a chemical known as P2P, phenyl-2-propanone, P2P for short. And this is a precursor that... Um, is you can make in many, many different ways. You can make it with all kinds of different chemicals, um, different different combinations of chemicals. So the benefit to traffickers is that they can, the government cannot crack down. As it cracked down on ephedrine, you just throttle the amounts of, of, of one drug that's available to them and their, their industry is suffocating. So now they can make this, this one precursor, essential ingredient, this precursor ingredient, they can make it a dozen, 15, 20, 30 different ways. And most of those ways involve chemicals that are legal, industrial, highly toxic, and very cheap. And if they can get them from the entire world, most of them are not made in Mexico, but you can get them imported. So you control ports, you can get these, these ingredients. And this also begins, a similar story begins to happen with with methamphetamine as happens later with with fentanyl and that is that they begin to learn how to make this p2p method of making methamphetamine and increasingly they scale that learning curve and by 2000 i would say 11 12 13 you see more and more people getting in a lot of the capos are selling the chemicals they want people to make more so they're selling the chemicals to producers and they're making it's like a big meth rush and huge amounts of, of this drug begin to be made beginning 12, 13, and you begin to see it just take over the Western United States first. It, it dislodges crack from Skid Row, LA. I never thought I'd ever see that, but it dislodges crack 
becomes the drug of choice to this day is still the drug, the main drug in, in Skid Row. You see it all over the West in Vegas and up in Portland and Albuquerque, et cetera. And then by 2017 and 18, it keeps marching across the country. It's the Midwest, 2017, 18. All those little shake and bake mom and pop meth cooks, they're all run right out of business like Walmart does to Main Street. And then by 2019, they're up, meth is up into New England, which has never had any methamphetamine of any kind of any sustained quantities. And what you see is too, it's a staggering thing because it, at the same time, they again, they're covering the country with this stuff. They also drop the price by 80%. I mean, it's amazing. I live in Nashville where six, seven years ago, the price for a wholesale pound of meth was $16,000. It's now $2,000. It's just an amazing drop. And it's um, for the audience, correct me, if I'm wrong, meth is a stimulant and opiates are uh, a depressant, right? Depressant. And, so, and what happens is you begin to see a reversal of what historians have always said was na the nature of the drug market in America, which is we go through cycles, right? Stimulants to depressants to stimulants to depressants, 10, 15 years each cycle. There's a definite cyclic, cyclic but these two drugs flatten out that cycle. Now it's fentanyl and meth, meth and fentanyl, depending on where you are. One's more important than the other, but they're both prevalent. They're both everywhere. And they're both in such staggering quantities that they're massively affecting the drug market. But with methamphetamine, fentanyl has its own issues, mainly the fact that it kills people without, without fail. Meth has its another issue. And this is, I found this out later in, my, in the writing of my book, I met a guy who was telling me, you know, when I, be, I began using methamphetamine in 01, I've been using it, it was a party drug. It was a great drug. I was a friend to everybody, the best friend of, you know, jabbering away all night. I held on to my life. I could function even though my life was kind of unraveling to some degree. I was still had a job, a house, a girlfriend, a car, all that kind of stuff. And then in 2009, precisely it hit me when he said this, precisely one year after the Mexican government had restricted imports of ephedrine, you begin to see the first supplies of P2P meth coming into the United States. In 2009, he said, I used it. And the first time in eight years I've been using methamphetamine, all of a sudden it drove me to unbelievable paranoia, psychosis, that I wasn't able to even understand. There were, you know, I thought my girlfriend was hiding a, a boyfriend in, a, in the walls, in the, in the mattresses, I was out of my mind. He said, it, for the next five years, I was still, I, until I got sober, I was, I was psychotic pretty much the entire time and very, and very quickly then uh, thrown out of every place he had to live, lost his apartment, mom and dad wouldn't take him in, girlfriend didn't want him anymore. All of this began to happen. And I began to think, he told me the story one night at a pizzeria. And I thought to myself, this methamphetamine is all over the country that he's describing, this P2P meth. What if I've been asking the wrong, or haven't been asking the right questions? And that, and that is, what if all across this country, there are people who are now on top of it, addicted to meth, but they're also psychotic. And, and, and sure enough, I began to call around and all over the country, West Virginia, Eastern Tennessee, Albuquerque, uh, Southern Indiana, LA Skid Row, on and on. There's a bunch of places I called, and every place reported the same thing. It was a staggering kind of reportorial journalistic moment when I go, holy shit, this stuff is not only across the country and cheaper than ever, but it's also creating 
you know, symptoms of schizophrenia, symptoms, psychosis in massive amounts everywhere it, it lands. And very quickly, that mental illness and that drug addiction is leading to homelessness. And very quickly, the whole homelessness is leading to tent encampments. And tent encampments become kind of the place where you are most at home if you are addicted to methamphetamine. The last place you want to be addicted to methamphetamine is in a homeless shelter because everybody's out of there. You know, you're just like surrounded by people who are like, Everyone's a threat, you know, and so the tent encampment becomes the new form of homelessness. And I believe very strongly now that you are that, that a major driver in the mental illness and, and, and homelessness problem that many communities are having all across the country is driven by this vast quantities of methamphetamine coming out of Mexico since 2009, but really since like 2011, 12 and 13. That's interesting because. The explosion of homelessness, the tenant camps, San Francisco, New York, Seattle, Portland, you know, that's where you really see it in thousands, really lines up with the timeline you're laying out with legal maneuvers, uh, cartel behavior. It's uh, fascinating. Is there, what's the solution, bro? Well, well, let me tell you this, though, before you get into that, let me, let me say this, that Homelessness has many causes. It's a very complicated thing, probably as complicated as every person who is homeless. You can go homeless, get get in, get homeless because become homeless because you are aged out of foster care, released from prison without any family support, domestic violence, child abuse. Um, you have a surgery, you lose a job, you're evicted. All these things are reasons for homelessness. Drug addiction is certainly right there at the, at the top. But the other thing that's that's part of this mix is important to keep in mind it causes this drug these two drugs meth i would say especially seems to cause homelessness very quickly but the other thing it does is keep people homeless regardless of why initially you are homeless foster care whatever it happens to be lose your apartment the drugs are so prevalent on the street and meth is particular so prevalent on the street that it keeps people who are home, homeless, regardless of the reason they first fell into homelessness. It could be economics, could be uh, a, a molestation, domestic violence, whatever. Once you're using on the street, it becomes very difficult then to get away. And you find people in tent encampments refusing help, even though the temperatures are, are dropping to lethal levels, even though, even though you're being dumped out and beaten and living in feces and all that, people do not leave. They're tent chemists because they are so uh, uh, dominated by their brain chemistry is so dominated by 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 the dope. So it's it's not just that fe- uh, these drugs cause homelessness, which they believe they do in in many cases, but in the many more cases that people are homeless for other reasons, it keeps people homeless. That's a, that's also a very important thing to keep keep in mind. You find this all over the country. People just fall into to meth, and pretty soon they're out of their minds. They're unable to really have a coherent, rational conversation with anybody. Um, and, and, and you see this over and over and over all across, all across the country. Well, the beauty of your latest book, The Least of Us, is think about what that says, The Least of Us, that you're a humanist and that yes. we do matter. That yes. those that die, those that live in these boxes, they're somebody's child, they're from some place and they matter. And I think... Again, man, uh, I think everybody's heard your intellect and your knowledge, 
but the beauty of your pen and the beauty of your soul. And I, and I mean that. I Thank absolutely you, mean that. And I right. wanted to say that. And I will Thank say this. Much. I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to get out. I'm going to, Red wants to ask you something. I'm sure Karen does. And um, I just want to thank you for, for being here. My pleasure. Great honor, uh, Charlie. I really appreciate your interest. Thanks so much, man. Fire away, guys. Uh, Sam, I wanted to ask you, and Charlie kind of asked you right there near the end, the solution. With, with, with the drugs being manufactured from a chemical base level now, you cannot just yes. stop them from coming from the root. What do you see the solution being? Will legalizing drugs make it safer for a problem we can never really get rid of? So it's coming from a control source or what do you see being the solution? Uh, you know, here's the how oh man that's a whole other hour of conversation. I want you guys to know. Well, I'm going to turn my underpants inside out. And we'll see you in <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to get into it because uh, people misunderstand some of the things I say and they get very mad at me and all that. So I, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that, that um, I believe we do not have a culture in America that allows for the, the safe and mature and adult legalization of drugs. We just do not stand up to large concentrations of power, money, and political influence. And that's what big pharma is, big alcohol, you know, a big, uh, you know, oil. And and um, I believe that I, I just don't, I, other countries might do a better job of that. I just don't see us doing it very well, honestly. So I am reluctant to suggest that maybe legalizing this. What I do believe, though, is this is not a natural state of affairs. Um, and this is brought on largely because of two words, capitulation and neglect. Capitulation, giving up on the part of the Mexican government, number one, how they just have said, well, no, we're not going to do anything about it. And, and uh, the corruption issue is crippling our country. But, you know, oh, well, and uh, we're not doing anything. Currently, the president of Mexico is basically of that mindset, seems to me. And neglect, and that is on the part of the United States, particularly I want to emphasize what I said earlier, and that is particularly the guns that are going south into Mexico, bought here wantonly, maddeningly, we have not, despite all the, the shootings, particularly with, with assault weapons, we still have allowed for the weapon, these weapons to be sold, and in a very, I, I think, very irresponsible ways, and all, a lot of those guns are going straight up down to the cartel. We, it's as if we might as well be arming ISIS. Okay? I do believe, I lived in Mexico for 10 years, and maybe I'm being naive, but you know what? I'm tired of cynics. I'm tired of cynics. I want to believe in something. I want to believe something is hopeful. And I do believe, after living in Mexico 10 years, that if we would, we would mount a concerted, sustained, long-term effort to collaborate with Mexico on these issues, that we would be, we would put a, a major dent in these, in the, in the, in the drug, in the, in these synthetic drugs, because the traffickers themselves have painted themselves into a corner, right? They now rely for those scatter, staggering profits that come along with the staggering quantities of drugs they're making. They now have to get their chemicals from only a handful of ports. There's not a lot of places where they can get these drugs. And so if there was a sustained, responsible, mature, well-motivated, and well-paid 
uh, law enforcement effort, maybe collaborative effort between the two countries to watch these ports, to make sure that they're being, that the, the chemicals that are coming through there are not going into the wrong hands. I don't think it would be the most difficult, difficult job in the world. I actually think it might be very, very easy once you have collaboration. Right. But again, the, 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 the lesson of these epidemics, I believe, is that we have, they are, they are symptoms of our own shredding community, of our own fragmentation, of our own isolation in the United States. That's what these things are about. And that's what they're symptoms of. And, and again, with, with regard to national and international relations, we don't really collaborate with Mexico. We just like each one does their own thing and, and points a finger at the other and says, you're, the, you're to blame. Well, both countries share a significant amount of the blame and they could ease, not easily, but with it's, it, would not, it would not be an impossible feat. Sam, Sam make, we're all make, they're all making a profit. Yeah. That's all I was going to say. There's one, there, there's, there's one word that you haven't mentioned that to me is the center of all of this, and that's greed. And you talked about the cooperation, you know, that if there was a structured approach, that's the same thing we talk about when we talk about people coming over here across the border. There's no real interest in doing any of this. You know, I just saw something that says, you know, the system isn't broken. It's fixed. It's structured this way. I, I mean, and, and it is. It's all about greed. It's still greed from from big pharma. It's greed from the government. It's it's this is and I want to believe in something, too. But the reality is, is that I'm starting to believe that this is this is just how it is. Hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I feel that and I and I and I can see why people would believe that or think that and there's ample reason to 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 be skeptical and all. I just think, having lived in Mexico for 10 years, I see there's an enormous reservoir of goodwill in Mexico towards the United States. I think there's probably the same here. And I think that this, this has never been tried. It's never been done. No president in my lifetime has ever paid the kind of attention to Mexico, which it, re it requires. And I think through collaboration, you find this, you find this everywhere. This is part of what I wrote about in The Least of Us. Through collaboration at the community level, you find solutions. That's how, the only way you find solutions to this is when people come together. It's very easy when everyone's in isolation as we are now to say, well, it's, it's hopeless. It's pointless. There's no point. No. Last question well, I here. Really. Well, I was going to say, Sam, I feel like uh, one way. Second to, to last question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> One way to get uh, maybe Mexico to care a little bit is if their people apply some pressure. Do the large cities in Mexico, do they have fentanyl or meth issues like we do here? Or is it all just yeah, coming not up really. There, meth has become an issue since it began to be made in the 90s. But really, it's not as widespread there. It's a it's a it's a complicated thing. And again, we would need a whole another hour to talk about why this might be possible. And while why, why Karen's skepticism, while justified, may not be the only story, but but again, this is you know we don't have a whole lot of time. It's a very long long process that would need to take place. And but I do believe in it. I do believe that there is, if you live in Mexico, you understand why that's the case. Now you're up against greed, sure. You're up against people who become extraordinarily vicious in pursuit 
of that great or extraordinarily callous, as in the 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 the, the, the Sackler film, and, and, and pursuit of, of that great, of course, of course. But but there is um, there are other things that are happening that 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 are antidotes to that. There's the there's the enormous um, uh, uh, you know a, a sh- kind of shredding of of of, uh, of of community that's going on that people do not want either here or in the United States. I believe there's an enormous enormous reservoir of 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 desire to be able to work together, but we don't even we don't even have the least bit of connection. It's I mean we do kind of like superficially, but how many how many how many people Americans do you think could name the six states? Of Mexico, the border of the United States. How many do you think? Chihuahua, Sinaloa, just Charlie. Coahuila, Baja. <laughs> There's one, only one American. Well, two. You. That's Cinco, bro. I got Cinco. <laughs> Um, last, one. last one. Last one. Last one. Last one. We're coming on the. Currently, with the flood of migrants coming over the border, the confiscation of uh, fentanyl at record levels, what's the connection if there's anything? No, no, no. It's, it, this is not created by people crossing the border as migrants. There are seizures of people with dope strapped to their tummies, or I saw one guy the other day had a cane full of pills, you know, that kind of thing. But we're talking about quantities that only, only can be smuggled in, 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 in trucks, trucks and cars and coming through ports of entry, border Matt, crossing, uh, you know? Okay. Hey, man, uh, I love you. I do. Uh, I, I think I got a new friend here. Will you be my friend, Sam? Oh, absolutely. Charlie. God, Thank that's you pathetic. So much. That's pathetic. Was that, how dope was that? Oh, man, listen here. I, I cannot wait to finish both books. I, I, I thank you for investing the time to bring this discussion to the table on this mass level. Think of this man's life. It. Yeah. I think mean, of it like, you know, he's talking about pizzerias. And did you go to the, um, Sam, you still there? Yeah. Uh, in Dreamland, I don't know if you actually entered into that famous government building where they were conducting LSD tests or you were hanging out on the outside of it? No. Oh, 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 no. Oh, I'm, I'm what, you, what you mean. Sure. Sure. You mean the, the narcotics farm, the prison that had become in, in the 1930s in Lexington, Kentucky, they opened FDR opened as a part of the new deal for, for addicts. That's what they called it. They opened uh, two prison hospitals where and the most important ones was Lexington, Kentucky, where they had it was a remarkable thing. There's a book called The Narcotics Farm. It's very basically a picture book, photos. It's a fascinating book where addicts from all over the country would come. It was probably the most integrated part of the entire United States, probably the most integrated 10 acres of the United States, literally gay, straight, everybody was there. And in fact, so many jazz musicians have been getting addicted to heroin because of Charlie Parker. Everybody wanted to play like Charlie Parker and he was a heroin addict. People thought that they, that they all, so many of them began going to this narcotics farm that they had one of the greatest jazz bands ever assembled in America for about, yeah, Sonny Rollins went there, Tad Dameron, 
um, Jackie McLean, all these great, great, I think Jackie McLean went there. Anyway, there's a bunch of great jazz musicians and they never recorded, but they would um, play and all the hipsters from Lexington would go up to the narcotics farm to, to hear this great jazz band, this great jazz band um, uh, uh, play. In the 70s, it got very weird and there was experimentation with LSD and they closed it. And, and now it's just a straight up prison hospital but it still exists and they, they wouldn't let me in. They wouldn't let me tour the place, but I was there one day. I just, uh, one new year's day, as a matter of fact, 2013, I was a snow and I was just driving around the thing, just taking notes on what this place looked like, because it was like the first attempt to deal. I thought it was actually a pretty good attempt, frankly, to deal with addiction in a different kind of way. All the prison, all the prison wardens were complaining because of the previous and by the thirties, because all the, the previous, 20, 30 years, we've been arresting addicts, putting them in prison, and they had been undermining the discipline of the prisons. The other inmates hated them, and they were always conniving and this kind of thing. So they said, why don't we put them all in one prison? And it actually worked fairly, fairly well until it got very weird in the 1970s. We need something something like it again, I think. See that? I just wanted, I asked him that, the life of a, of a, of a true reporter. New Year's, snowing. I'm just hanging out at this fucking weird gray building writing notes. That's what it takes. That's why he's brilliant. And that's why everybody I know, till I'm done talking on this earth, are going to know about your work, brother. Thank you very much for being here. Great to be with you, Charlie, and all you others. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You.